Do we sing it like we know it, or do we sing it like it's written? I sing it like I know it. Glad you're with us today. I want to welcome you. My turn to welcome you. Um, if you're a guest of ours, we are especially honored that you chose to be with us today. And I'll tell you right up front, I've got some good news and bad news this morning. The good news is we are continuing our sermon series on the life of David. I've entitled it Chasing the Heart of God. Uh, we're spending a couple of weeks looking at the life of David. And that's good news because the story just gets better and more exciting. The bad news is, and really this is just bad news for some of you in the audience. The bad news is today's Father's Day and I'm not preaching a Father's Day sermon. So if you're a dad and you're here and you're really hoping to hear a sermon about how wonderful it is to be a father and the importance of fathers, all those things are true, but I'm not preaching that sermon this morning. So maybe if you're a dad, maybe you're used to being disappointed anyway, right? Or dismissed. Reminds me of the story I heard about the, the woman who was trying to convince her husband to let her get a pet monkey. And the husband's very much against it. He said, where would a monkey eat? His wife said, well, he'd eat at the table with us. He said, well, what would he eat? Well, he'd eat the same thing we would eat. And the husband said, well, where would a monkey sleep? She said, he'd sleep in the bed with us. He said, in the bed with us? What about the smell? His wife said, well, I got used to you. I figured the monkey will too. So I don't want you fathers to think that you've been forgotten or unappreciated or maybe just simply tolerated this morning, but we are going to be talking about David. And we're not even going to be talking about David as a dad this morning. This isn't original with me, by the way, but I, I heard someone say once that the, the ways of God seem to be the most difficult to accept and maybe even irrelevant when we are angry, isolated, or afraid. In other words, we're more likely to think to ourselves, you know, God's way is just not going to work for me when we're angry, isolated, or afraid. We're more likely to think that I, I can figure it out on my own, that, you know, why would anyone really want to live the way God wants us to live when we are angry, isolated, or afraid? And really, we get it, don't we? These three conditions have the potential to, to sort of undermine the, the resolve of even the most faithful Christian, that we're much more likely to do things when we're angry that we wouldn't do otherwise. And we're likely to do things when we're isolated or maybe very lonely that we wouldn't do otherwise. Or when we're afraid, we say things and we do things that we wouldn't normally do. In fact, you can probably think back to some of the greatest regrets in your life. And you realize some of my greatest regrets happened at a time when I was angry, I said something I shouldn't have said. Or I was very lonely, and, and, and I did something that, that I shouldn't have done. Or, or I was afraid, and you know I did something that I, I knew better than to do that. It's the reason why we are more apt to, to do something that we'll regret in, in those situations is there's something in us as human beings that when we're angry, when we're isolated, when we're afraid, we just get the feeling, I've got to do something. We get this knee-jerk reaction feeling of, I've got to respond. I've got to say something. I've got to do something. I've got to fix it. And so many times what we do leads to real regrets. Now, I open with this 
because what we're going to see is this exact thing happening in the life of David. Uh, David is going to do something um, that's really going to make us kind of scratch our head and say, why would David, of all people, do that? And the reason is David is angry, isolated, and afraid. Last week we talked about one of David's greatest victories. He killed a giant with just a sling and a stone and a really big sword. David had a lot of victories in his life. He also had a lot of failures. In fact, David had two colossal failures in his life. One we talk about all the time. It occurred when he was an older man, probably about my age. Another failure, colossal failure of David's, we don't talk about nearly as much. And it happened when he was a much younger man. But we need to talk about it because it's a failure that was going to not only haunt David the rest of his life, it was going to follow him and affect him the rest of his life. We ended the story last week uh, with the defeat of Goliath and the entire Philistine army. And I mentioned that David immediately becomes the most famous man in the land. He has killed the giant. He has uh, led the defeat against the Philistines. And people are in love with the kid. Now, scholars disagree a little bit about just exactly how old David was when he defeated Goliath. It's in agreement that he was a youth. Some say he was as young as 15 years of age when he defeated Goliath. So he defeats the giant and everybody falls in love with David. He, he is incredibly uh, popular. Uh, women are writing songs about this kid. Now, Saul is okay, but, but David is something else, which Saul doesn't like. Saul doesn't like that at all. Saul is incredibly insecure through this whole thing. So when David defeats Goliath, he doesn't go back and become a shepherd again. He doesn't go back home. Saul has him come to the palace. And Saul's idea is, I'm going to keep an eye on this kid. I'm going to keep him close to me where I can sort of keep him, uh, you know, under control. Know what's going on. Um, so what Saul does is actually offers David his daughter's hand in marriage. And David's response to that offer is really pretty interesting. David says, who am I? No, I, I I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And he rejects Saul's offer of his daughter in marriage, which just makes him more popular. Because everybody's going, wow, who would do a thing like that? Who would refuse being the son-in-law to the king? This kid is amazing. Maybe the fact that he was 15 years old had something to do with it. I don't know. But, you know, he's so humble. This is, this is something else. Now, a little bit of time goes by, and another one of Saul's daughter, a woman by the name of Michael, actually falls in love with David. And they get married. So he does become the son-in-law to the king. Not only is he this king's son-in-law, the king's own son, a guy by the name of Jonathan, becomes best friends with David. The very best of friends. So Saul's idea to keep David close, where he could keep an eye on him, might have been a good idea had it been someone other than David. Because now Saul is starting to realize this whole thing is kind of backfiring on me. Because my family loves this guy. I mean, my, my very closest family. Now he is family, but they love this guy. And Saul gets more and more jealous. To the point that not only does he want to control David, he gets to the point where he actually wants to kill David. 
Several times Saul himself tries to kill David without success. And then he decides, I'll just send David on these impossible missions. I'll let the Philistines kill him. So he sends David on these missions that he knows he can't survive. But David still survives. In fact, David starts registering these victory after victory after victory. And the text tells us why David is so successful. First Samuel chapter 18, David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. God's with David. Seven years go by. Seven years of David walking this tightrope with the king. He is wildly successful in battle. His popularity and his influence explode. But King Saul becomes more and more jealous. King Saul hates David. And it all sort of culminates at a dinner one night at the palace. Dinner at the palace was a pretty big deal. The family was expected to be there. David was expected to be there. David is not there this particular evening. Uh, in the past, when David didn't show up for dinner, Jonathan was sort of cover for David. So Jonathan started trying to start to, to cover for him again. But at this particular dinner, Saul loses it. I mean, Saul just goes off. Now I'm going to warn you, this is one of those R-rated version, or R-rated scriptures uh, in the Bible. But here's what Saul does. Here's what he says. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. Again, this is at dinner. Everyone's sitting around. You stupid son of a whore, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want David to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? Which I don't know why Saul is worried about shaming Jonathan's mother. He just called her a whore. I hope she's not sitting at the table there. Certainly shows us something about the, the heart of King Saul. As long as that son of Jesse's alive, you'll never be king. Saul's the first king of Israel. He assumes that David is, or that Jonathan, his son, will be the next king of Israel. Now, go and get him, David, so I can kill him. Go and get David so I can kill him. David is 22 years old. Jonathan does go to David, but he doesn't go so he can bring him back to his death. He goes and finds David and tells him, Dad has lost it. He is going to kill you. He's going to, he's going to muster all of his troops and he's going to come after you. You've got to get out of here. You don't just have to leave this place. You've got to leave this country. So, here's David. 22 years old. He is in fear of his life. He has been rejected by the very man that he's risked his life for over and over and over again. He feels rejected by the very people that he's risked his life for over and over and over again. And David has done absolutely nothing wrong. But David is no doubt a little bit angry. He's certainly isolated. And he's afraid. And David did what so many of us do when we're angry, isolated, or afraid. He panics. He decides to take matters into his own hands. In fact, he forgets the thing that centered him all through his life. He seems to miss the very presence and the providence of God. And we look and say, David, how could you do that? 
How could you forget about God? How could you try to figure this out on your own? Well, he was angry, isolated, and afraid. When we are angry, isolated, and afraid, I suspect there are probably people who are watching us and asking, why would you do that? What are you thinking? Why are you choosing this direction? Because it's so easy to see in other people what other people should do, it's almost impossible to see it in ourselves. When we're angry, when we're just reacting, when we're lonely, when we're afraid, it is so easy to see what other people should be doing and they're in that situation, it is almost impossible to see it in ourselves. And the reason is, we think we're different. In fact, that's the words we use, right? You don't know. You don't know the situation. Oh, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm up against. And that's kind of where David is. And, you know, if you really want to be honest, you can probably look back at your own life. And, again, some of your greatest regrets probably happened at a time when you were kind of in this mindset. I was angry. I shouldn't have said that. I was alone. I didn't have anyone to help me. I I was afraid. That's where David is. So, let's see what the text does. What does David do? First Samuel 21. David went to the city of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. A little bit of context. Um, Jerusalem is not yet the holy city. The temple has not been built. The tabernacle is still the, uh, the place where uh, the priest is, priests are and the Ark of the Covenant is. This point in history, it happens to be at the city of Nob. So David goes there to, to see the priest. Himelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? Himelech the priest sees David and it bothers Himelech a little bit. Because usually when David shows up, you heard him coming before you saw him because he traveled with a huge army. Now it's just David. He's a little bit disheveled. He's a little bit antsy. And Ahimelech is like, what's going on here? What's wrong? Why are you by yourself? And David looks at the priest, stares him right in the eye, and he lies. He tells a lie. Now, David knows that God condemns lying. It's in the top ten, right? Thou shalt not... Bear, okay, you're showing off. Bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Not only does David know that, those, those words written in stone by the hand of God would have been a few feet from where David was talking to the priest in the Ark of the Covenant as David is standing you know, near the tabernacle. David knows he's not supposed to be lying. Now, last week I talked about how much David loved the law. Well, he's breaking the law here. Here's what David says. The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. Shh, it's top secret. He told me not to tell anyone why I am here. I've told my men where to meet me later. It's all very hush-hush. Very important. Shouldn't even be talking about it. Certainly shouldn't be telling you, my men know where to meet me later. By the way, this lie is not only going to cost David, it's going to cost Ahimelech and his family their lives. David continues. 
Now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else that you have. David says, I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Really, anything will do. And again, Ahimelech's got to be thinking, what is going on? You're the most famous guy in the land. You are the son-in-law to the king. You're David. And you show up here by yourself, and you're hungry. Here's what the priest tells uh, David. We don't have any regular bread, the priest replied. But there is the holy bread, which I guess you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Okay, this is a little bit hard for us to understand. Um, but the only bread that was there was bread that had been consecrated to the Lord, which meant only the priests could eat it, and even that after some ceremonial things had been done, kind of what Josh was talking about. And basically what Ahimelech is telling David is, there is some bread here, but you're not supposed to be eating it. But, since you're David, and because of the story that you just told, which we know was a lie, I guess you can eat the bread. Now, if you were here last week, if you picked up one of those cards on the way out, if you've been looking at that card all week long, you may put it on your dresser somewhere where you saw it all week long, you've got to be asking yourself the question, what happened to the guy who said, in you, my Lord, I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long? Where's that guy? What happened to that version of David? What's going on with David? What is he forgetting? Well, the story goes on. It gets stranger and really more fascinating. Verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Come on. You're the most famous warrior in the land. You're here by yourself on some secret mission from the, from the king. And you didn't bring a weapon with you? Come on. And this is the point. I don't want you to miss it. This is the point in the story that should have changed David's path. This is the point in the story that, that should have made a big difference in the story. This is, if this had been a movie, this would be where the music starts to, you know, to crescendo, because something's about to happen. Himlech's about to, to say something. David is about to see something that should change his course. Here's what the priest says. I only have the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. The priest replied, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want, for there's nothing else here. This should have been a splash of cold water in David's face. I need a weapon. I need something. Anything will do. All I have is the sword of Goliath, the giant that you killed in the Valley of Elah seven years ago. You remember that, David? Shouldn't that visuals have done something? Shouldn't that immediately transported him back to the very thing that God did to kind of catapult him into this national prominence? It's the sword of Goliath. You remember what happened that day, David? You remember where your trust was that day? Remember who you hoped in that day? You remember what you said? You remember what you did? Do you remember what God did that day? Don't you think when David saw that sword, all those thoughts would have been rushing back? 
Don't you think he would have remembered shouting to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Don't you remember David would have remembered, don't you think David would have remembered saying, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Shouldn't he have remembered all of those things when he sees the sword of Goliath? Where was that kid? Where's that version of David? The one who ran towards danger in the name of the Lord. Where was the poet who wrote, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. What's going on with David? Well, he's angry, he's isolated, and he's afraid. David gets this powerful visual aid to remind him of God's faithfulness and and God's provision and his protection, and he completely misses it. All David says is, there's nothing like it. Give it to me. Now, this is going to be a decision that David is going to regret for the rest of his life. He takes matters into his own hands. He lies. He deceives. He breaks the law. He's on the run from crazy King Saul with with the very sword that he used to defeat the Philistine champion. And we scratch our heads and wonder, why would David act that way? Yet on the other side of the coin, it's really pretty easy for us to relate to David at this point in his life, isn't it? Because all too often, when we need God the most, we seem to look to him the least. All too often, when we ought to be trusting in God the most, we're trying to figure it out on our own. When we should be leaning on God, we're deciding, oh, I can handle it. Even though God has proven to us over and over again how good He is and how faithful He is, and even though God has given us reminder after reminder after reminder of all the times He's delivered us and protected us in the past, seems that when we need God the most, we run in the opposite direction. And again, it is so easy to see this in other people. You see it happening to your co-workers and friends and family members all the time. They're in some situation and they're making decisions and you're like, that is not going to help. I'm telling you, that's not going to help. What you're doing with your spouse, what you're doing with your children or your parents or you know the workplace, you think it's going to make things easier, it's going to make things more complicated. It is not going to work out like you think it's going to work out because it is so easy to see it in other people. And it's so hard to see it in ourselves because we're different. And our situation is different. Well, that's what David told himself as well. The story's far from over, by the way. Time goes by. If you read the entire story, what you see is David starts to come to his senses. But back when he was with the priest Ahimelech, there was someone else that was there. Someone else that overheard some of what was said. A guy by the name of Doeg. And Doeg overheard the conversation that David had with the priest and he got it wrong. But he got just enough of it right to make Ahimelech the priest sound very, very bad. Doeg very much wanted to be in good with King Saul. And so Doeg tells Saul that David was with Ahimelech. You're looking for David. I know where he was. 
he was with the priest, and King Saul, I hate to be the one to break this to you, but David, your enemy, was aided by the priest. In fact, the text says this in 1 Samuel 22. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. When I was at Nob, he said, I saw David talking to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech consulted the Lord to find out what David should do. Then he gave David food and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. In other words, the priest beseeched God on your enemy's behalf. The priest fed your enemy. The priest armed your enemy. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. When they arrived, Saul shouted at him, Listen to me, you son of a tub. What is it, my king? Ahimelech asked. And here's what Saul asks. Why have you and David conspired against me? Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you inquired of God for him? Why did you encourage him to revolt against me and to come here and attack us? Saul is shouting, you're in on it. You're all in on it. You're all against me. And the priest is like, what are you talking about? Verse 14, but sir, Ahimelech replied, is there anyone among all your servants who's as faithful as David, your son-in-law? Why, he's the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household. This is certainly not the first time I've consulted God for him. Please don't accuse me and my family in this matter, for I knew nothing of any plot against you. Ahimelech is basically saying to the king, are you out of your mind? This is David we're talking about. He's your son-in-law. He's the one who's been having all these victories for you. Come on. There's nobody else like David. There's no plot against you. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 16. This is Saul speaking. You will surely die, Ahimelech, along with your entire family. And he ordered his bodyguards, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priest. Saul says, kill these priests. And Saul's men are like, mm, I'll kill your enemies. But I'm not killing the Lord's priests. So Saul turns to Doeg, the Edomite. Then the king said to Doeg, you do it. So Doeg turned on them, killed them. Eighty-five priests in all, still wearing their priestly tunics. Then he went to Nob, the city of the priest, and killed the priest's families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, and sheep. There is a slaughter. Eighty-five priests, and then their families, men, women, children, babies. Very few people escaped the slaughter. One son of Ahimelech did. And he goes and finds David. And he falls at David's feet and he tells him everything that's happened. And David is broken. And here's how David responds to the news. I have caused the death of all your father's family. David was responsible for the death of an entire village. Men, women, children. Babies. Because he decided to take matters into his own hands. Because he left God out of the equation. 
And when you leave God out of the equation, the consequences can be tragic. Now, next week, we're going to pick the story back up. And we're going to look at uh, another chapter of David's life, which I think is even more fascinating. But before I close this morning, I want to ask you a, a couple questions. Because this chapter out of David's life, I, I think, can really challenge us as we are in the process of writing some chapters in our own life. So a couple questions as we close. And the first question is what? What is your anger, loneliness, or fear causing you to consider that you've never considered before? Well, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something that's financial. Maybe it's the idea of going back to some habit that you spent months, maybe years, freeing yourself of. You've never considered an option before, but because you're angry, because you're lonely, because you're afraid, you're starting to consider it as a, as a viable option again. Or maybe the better question is who? Who is your anger, loneliness, or fear causing you to consider that you know would be a mistake? You never returned the call, but uh, you're thinking about calling her back now. You've never reciprocated with all the flirting that he does in the office, but because of what's going on at your home, you know, with your spouse or with your family or something else going on in your life, you're, you're kind of thinking that that might be an option, even though you know. I mean, you know, you know where that is headed. And you know the disaster that that will cause. And here's a question that, that I really want you to consider. David missed it, but I don't want us to miss it. Who else are we putting at risk because of our actions? These options, they were never options before. Who beside you is going to be affected by your decision? And by the way, I already know the answer to that question. So do you. The person that's going to be affected most by our decisions, the people that we love the most. And the people that love us the most. And some of you know that firsthand. Because growing up, your dad's anger got out of control and he did some things and you've been dealing with it ever since. Or maybe when you were growing up, your mother's sense of loneliness or abandonment kind of got out of control and she turned to some things and, and you've been dealing with it ever since. Who else are we putting at risk? Who else's future hangs in the balance of the decisions that we're making? We don't live in a vacuum. And then one last question. What advice would you give someone who is you? What advice would you tell yourself? Because again, it is so clear what other people should do. And it's so obvious what other people's decisions should be. When it's someone else, it's so clear. It's so plain. But when it's me, I'm convinced I'm the exception to the rule. But I'm not. And neither are you. You are a unique individual. Your situation is not unique. You're a very special person. Your situation is not special. You're a one-of-a-kind person. 
Your circumstance is not a -a one-of-a-kind circumstance. It's a well-worn path. That's why it's so obvious and so easy to know what other people should do. Now, the interesting thing about that question, we know what advice we would give someone else. We know exactly what advice we would give him. And we know what advice David would give us. Not 22-year-old David, but an older David. A wiser David. Later on, King David would write this, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Not another person. Not an affair. Not education. Not a a better house. A bigger bank account. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Shelter for the oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never abandoned anyone who searches for you. When you're angry, God's the one you run to. When you're isolated, when you're lonely, God's the one you seek. When you are afraid, God's the one you search for. We know that advice. That's the advice we give. But sometimes we forget to remember it ourselves. David did. David forgot to remember it himself. And a thousand years later, a thousand years after David would write that, David's most famous descendant, born in the city of David, Jesus would look into the faces of some very scared Israelites. And Jesus would say this, Come to me. Come to me. If you're angry, come to me. If you are lonely, come to me. If you are afraid, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle and you will find rest for your souls. This morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That's the invitation this morning. Come to Jesus. Let's stand and sing.